You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So we had three interesting characters for this week that took us across the spectrum. So we began with pietism. So we are in chapter 27. So what do we know about Mr. Spinner? Regarded as the founder, yes. Did he live in the 19th century, 18th century, 17th century, 17th century? Okay, so 17th century. Mm-hmm. Primarily died early 18th, yes. Okay, died 1705. All right. Okay, he's Lutheran from Lutheran Church. Okay, German. German. Anything else? What was his um, attitude towards scriptures? Well, he did. He believed in infant baptism, yes. Did he play fast and loose with the scriptures? No, not at all. Yeah, interesting. We, we'll, we'll tease that out a bit. Yeah, that's right. Okay, yes, that's right. Okay, we're on page 195 if we haven't found our way there yet. So what was, what was Pi... Yeah, let's see, how do we want this? What was pietism, before we define what it is, what was it a, a reaction to? Let's just begin with that. That'll help define what it is. Okay. Yes. Yes. So it was reaction to, and in quotes there in the first paragraph on 195, a hardening of the arteries of theology, close the quote. Hardening of the arteries. It was a reaction to Protestant scholasticism. Remember reading that term in that chapter? Protestant scholasticism? What would that be? What is scholasticism? Do we remember? Aquinas was a scholastic. So perhaps we would say the originator of scholasticism. That was Roman Catholic scholasticism. Emphasis on the rational, so a rationalistic, philosophical approach to theology. What's wrong with that? Okay, man's mind, not scripture. Doesn't bridge the gap. Tease it out for me a little. Okay, logic only takes you so far due to the fall. Yep, that's true. That is true. Were the Protestant scholastics orthodox? Nod your head up and down. That would be the right answer. Yes, they were. They were. In fact, they were very orthodox. So what was the problem? What does it mean to harden the arteries? What's a hardening of the arteries? What does that mean? Just physically. What's a physical hardening of the arteries? No, no flexibility, right? It's a cardiac condition having to do with a narrowing, 
right? I'm already way out on the limb and way beyond my training. A narrowing of the blood flow through the arteries that leads to potential heart attack and death, stroke, heart attack, death. Okay? So what would a hardening of the arteries of theology imply? Use of that metaphor, what would that imply? Yes, yes. It is a, a subtle process. And I want you to notice, by the way, the dates. That's why I asked you at the beginning. Is this 18th, 17th, 16th century? Where are we here? So we are in 17th century. We're only 100 years beyond Luther. Less than 100, actually. Less than 100 beyond Calvin. So a couple generations. Two maybe three, and that wonderful theology that ignited the Reformation has become hardened, codified, something to assent to, but it doesn't produce any life in the soul anymore. See, all, all true theology is doxological. It produces worship of God. And so when, when precise right theology doesn't get from here to here, you're dead. Your theology's perfect, and you're dead. And that's what pietism was a reaction to, as the church was becoming calcified. There's, when, you, uh, when you head off to seminary, as a young man, you'll often hear this admonition that when you go to seminary, and you're going to spend an incredible amount of time and energy and effort studying theology and the scriptures and so forth, the languages, all of that. In the process, do not lose contact with God. Do not make him like a subject of study under a microscope and have seminary turn into cemetery. fully orthodox, and it doesn't change you. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't, doesn't impact you day to day, moment to moment. And in the process, you lose the two greatest commands, which are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. All right? So, as we just begin this, I cannot help but be reminded of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. What do we know about the church at Ephesus? Doctrinally sound. I mean, what's one of the most theologically deep epistles of the New Testament? It's, it's got to be the book of Ephesians. It's incredible. Powerful, rich, dense. Look what he writes to the church at Ephesus. Again, just probably two generations removed from its founding. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and then you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put the to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. 
And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Man, that sounds commendable. Everything so far, very commendable. Orthodox, persistent in the faith, so forth. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The church... (laughs) We'll start with the Lutheran Church, because that is the, the place where the Reformation essentially broke out under Luther. The, the, the Lutheran Church, it, it was very orthodox, but, but it was slipping away from them in terms of its ability to change their life. And in reaction to that, Notice again, the bottom of page 195. Theology now focused on systemization and propositions and attempted to extend theological knowledge into fine details. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? But in the process, the intimate relationship of theology to life was again obscured. This was the era of Protestant scholasticism. The scholasticism, next page, affected Calvinism and was at least partially responsible for the reaction of Arminius. We remember him from last week. And others, as we saw in the previous chapter. It also affected Lutheranism and prompted a different kind of reaction, pietism. Pietism. Okay. So you understand what drove it. What was it? What characterized it? Benefits could we see in it? What critique would we make of it? Is it with us today? Should it be with us today? Those are the kind of questions we want to consider. Okay, excellent. It it required, (laughs) it stressed, living like a Christian in opposition to a reliance upon your baptism, your church attendance, your your affirmation of the creed, all the external measures of orthodoxy, and yet a real deadness of soul. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay? You notice his book, page 196, near the bottom, Pia Desideria, or Pious Desires, essentially a handbook for pietism. Okay, and and yes, that led to, at the bottom of the page here, let's finish it out, pious gatherings or small groups of Christians meeting regularly to pray, study the Bible, discuss various topics, and generally hold one another accountable. Wow, that's not bad. (laughs) It'll never catch on, I agree. (laughs) Yeah, 
Yes. That's that's true. They might. <laughs> yeah, fascinating, huh? So one critique there, and it, and I put a box around it right there in the middle of that page, 198. This needed to be more than what came from sermons, even over the course of many years, covered only a small part of the Bible. Okay. I wish Jim was here. I'd say it in front of him. I'm not embarrassed. <laughs> that is a weakness of slow, deep exposition, if that's the only exposure to the Scriptures. Why? Because there's only a limited exposure to the Scriptures. Yeah. Yeah, we, we need the full counsel of not. We need, a, we need a broad encounter with God through his word. So does that mean we abandon cloak, slow, careful, in-depth exposition? Well, not at all. just means we need to recognize that in and of itself is not. If we have pietistic leanings, <laughs> that that in and of itself is not sufficient. There has to be other venues. We need the word. We need a lot of it. Massive. Interesting. So you use the terminology quiet time. That's pietistic terminology. That's where it comes from. The pietists. A time alone, reading the word and praying. Quiet time. Do you have a, quote, quiet time? Do you have to have a quiet time to be a mature Christian believer? No. You don't. Is it one effective means? Yes. Mm -hmm. Notice pietism is a back to the Bible movement. It's really a, it is a back to the Bible source, yeah, pursuit of the source, pursuit of the Word of God, hear the Word of God, pray, talk about the Word of God with other believers, and exhort and encourage one another to love and good deeds. I mean, these things are, I don't, they're really not questionable anymore. <laughs> we all accept it. Because to one degree or another, we all have been affected by pietism. And on balance, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Now, are there theological quibbles that we could make with Spinner? Did you find anything in there that you go, eh? <laughs> okay, and for baptism? Uh-huh. Okay. So now we have, yeah. We will we will get to that. Not tonight, but at some point here. Okay. So we have the whole issue of baptism, its relationship to conversion and, and all of that. Yep. Okay. Anything else? Right. Yeah. I mean those of us in the in the conservative reformed tradition are suspicious of emotion. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm glad that sermon didn't make me want to cry. <laughs> That's true. Emotions can be manipulated for sure. Sure, there's there's room for all kinds of mischief in that area. Yep. Get, he got out of order, yeah? Yes. Yep, that's right. Okay. Notice um, he says there at the bottom of page 197, express itself in a growing 
holiness of lifestyle. So there's another characteristic of pietism, is an emphasis on a holiness of lifestyle. Okay. Again, is that on balance a good thing? Right? Yeah. I mean, can we find clear, unambiguous biblical teaching talking about the, the bring forth the fruit of repentance? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Okay. Let's, um, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. It'd be great to have a hermeneutics class this fall. Oh, wait a minute, we are going to have one. And because um, it will, yes, it will affect how we approach that passage. Is that passage a common commending or condemning that approach? That is a massive hermeneutical question and will obviously affect what you come away from it understanding. Is it a, is it a template? for first century worship that ought to be emulated, or is it a critique of the confusion of the Corinthian assembly? Right. So, yes, he wants to reintroduce ancient and apostolic worship. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever, you ever encountered any kinds of groups or meetings where people are looking to kind of get back to the ancient church? I mean, it, it, it rolls through the evangelical church once every generation or so. That whole idea of simplicity and home church and and even uh, unordained men and sharing the teaching, which is what Quakers do. So that is an interesting question. He brought the heart back into Christianity. In other words, can Christianity exist without heart engagement? So we would say no. Can Christendom exist? <laughs> Okay, yes. Yeah. Well, what had the church become at large? It had become cultural, assent to, to theological proposition, believe the right way, and politics certainly entered in, into all of that. And I think that's what the author is after, is he's saying that by bringing the heart back in, it... it reintroduced, and okay, so here's where it gets interesting, is look at the first paragraph under conclusion. I'll just read it to you. Two other influential pietists were directly connected to Spinner. August Herman Frank was a convert of Spinner and a leader of the movement after his death, and Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf was Spinner's grant was godson. From the latter arose the Moravian Brethren Church, which reflected Zinzendorf's evangelistic spirit, and the Moravians in turn launched the first real Protestant missionary effort. I would probably just extend that sentence a bit and say since the apostolic period. Or maybe 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 that's unnecessary just by saying, okay, of the Protestant, right? Because, okay, I get it. Reformation, Protestants begin. Fine. Okay? It was through the influence of the Moravian missionaries, and of course we read about Wesley for tonight. Was set on, uh, John Wesley was set on the course that led to his conversion. Listen, scholasticism does not promote missionary engagement. And the church had become insular without a heart to see others 
come to faith. Why? Well, because you're born in Germany. You're, you're baptized in a Lutheran church as an infant. You're, you're a Lutheran. Okay, biographical note. My dear wife, and she wouldn't mind me telling this, I don't believe. At 17 years old, a, a friend of hers, and this is in Massachusetts, a friend of hers uh, said to her, Carol, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, I was born in New Jersey. And dead serious. Dead serious. Now, she grew up in a military family. She had lived in Iran. She lived in Turkey. Now living in, in Massachusetts. Are you a Christian? Yes. I was born in New Jersey. What, what would lead her to that kind of, a, of an understanding? It's that idea of Christendom, right? You're, you're born in America. Now this is 1956. I mean, you know, we're going back a ways. America was a different place then. But the notion was, if you were born in America, you're a Christian. If you ever talk to somebody, and it's often for older people, you want to share the gospel with them, and they tell you, it's okay, I'm a Methodist. It's, a, it's okay, I'm a Baptist. I, I was raised a Baptist. No, 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 that's not what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the gospel. I don't want to talk to you about how you were raised in some religious tradition. It's pietism that, that motivates that love that would take, you want to take orthodoxy and preach it in a way that brings conversion. And so, yes, the, the pietists launched the modern missionary effort. Powerful stuff. Because what has happened is the gospel has moved west since the first century. It has been moving west since the first century. It has moved beyond the west in large degree and has moved east. That'd be the apostolic missionary movement. The apostolic missionary movement, the, the initial first couple hundred years. Yeah. Yep. Is Roman, are the Roman Catholics missionary inclined in, in, in missions? Yes. Yes. In response to the Reformation. Sure. With the Reformation, uh, were born the Jesuits who went to take Roman Catholicism in opposition to the what they called Lutheran heresy, which was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to take it to the world. Uh, the Crusades are a, are a separate, yeah, are, are a really fascinating period of history for sure. But yeah, the Crusades were not evangelistic in any realistic sense of the word. Okay, that was, that was, yeah. Okay. 
So on balance, I mean, I guess I probably tipped my hand already a long time ago. Am I, am I in favor of pietism? Absolutely. It, it puts the heart back into it. It has to go from the head to the heart. What we believe has to affect how we live, how we love. And if it doesn't, we're messed up. Yes. And I'm glad that God sorts this stuff out, not me. Right? I'm not the gatekeeper who's in and who's out, which is a good thing. <laughs> Definitely a good thing. Okay. Anything else on uh, pietism? Because we're going to roll over into perhaps one of the greatest pietists of American history. Which, which is, again, probably not something that initially you might say about Jonathan Edwards. It was definitely pietistic in his orientation. Right? So what do we know about Jonathan? Biographically, what do we know about him? By the way, I have ten copies of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, advice to young converts. Ten copies available for free to the first ten people who can give me a fact about Jonathan Edwards. He was a man. He was a man. got to do better than that. <laughs> yeah, you you already have this. You don't you don't need this. No, seriously, I wish I had a copy for everybody. I just don't. First president of Princeton, you can collect your copy. Come on up. He died from the jab. He died from the jab. Come collect your copy. Uh, a different jab, but collect your copy. Well done. Anything else we know about Jonathan? Uh, <laughs> Michael Reeves would be in error. Okay. <laughs> Prince of the Puritans. Do you have a copy? You already got one. All right. Good. We'll take that fact, though. Anything else? Come on. I got eight of these things to give away still. He entered college at 13. I like that. President of Princeton. What is now Princeton? Here you go. Pass that back to him, would you? Okay, good. He was an adversary to enlightenment thinking. Adversary of enlightenment thinking, yes. Well done. Something was somebody was saying something over here. Okay. Yes. Edwards on affections. Magnificent. Here's your copy. I'll pass that back to him, please. Here we go. Shouldn't throw it around, but I just did. Anybody else? Believed in the five solas. Most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Yes. Which is not character. We are going to talk a little bit about Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Everybody thinks that's Jonathan Edwards. Man, that's, that guy must have been a firebrand. He did not preach like that. And there was a reason he preached that sermon, and that reason has to do with pietism. And, and Protestant scholasticism. He was a calm preacher. He put his head down and read his manuscripts. Did you say that? Do you have one of these? You do now. I'm down to one. Oh, I love it. A Yankee. Well done. All right. Yes. Yeah, he was trying to clean up his grandfather's mess. 
They fired him, kept him on for years until they could find someone to replace him. For free. For free. For free. And he stayed. He just kept going back and back until they finally really. Yep. Yep. 23 years. They fired him. Okay. Because he tried to clean up his grandfather's halfway covenant, which was a mess. Okay. The problem was that they had been baptized into the church and they were unconverted people. And they wanted access to the table, and that tortured his soul, and he forbid them access to the table. But the problem was he forbid access to the table to the children of the most powerful family in the church. If you're going to take, pick a fight with the biggest bull in the ring, you've got to be prepared for the consequences. That's never been done before. No. I wasn't happy today either. No. 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 Okay. Good. So there's just a few facts on Edwards. Let's see. By the way, uh, in your syllabus, I'll just refer it to you. On page 202 there, the first full paragraph, uh, we get a little bit of English history, the English Civil War. Executioner of King Charles I under Cromwell, English Puritanism. Right, So this is just a little background on the Puritan. He's the last Puritan, so what are the Puritans, where they came from? Well, you see here, they were seeking to purify the Anglican Church. Some stayed in it and tried to purify it. Others separated from it. Some came to America. Early pilgrims were Puritan in that sense. And, uh, of course, the execution of the Catholic King Charles I ended the monarchy. The monarchy was reestablished in 1660. The Westminster Assembly, 1643 to 1649, produced one of the most important Calvinistic Puritan doctrinal statements, namely the Westminster Confession of Faith which was intended to replace the 39 Articles of Religion. Page 66 in your syllabus, there's a short synopsis I wrote years ago on the Westminster Confession. I just I put it in there for you. I thought, well, if you've never read it, or this would at least be a way to begin to introduce you to it. We're not going to spend any time with it tonight. I just let you know it's there. Okay? So I'll let you know it's there. Okay. Let's talk about the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening. There were two Great Awakenings. The first Great Awakening, the result of his ministry there in Northampton, Massachusetts, revival broke out. I'm at the bottom of page 202. In the mid-1730s, in part, a part of the larger event known as the first Great Awakening, his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you, have you ever read that sermon? Okay, If you've never read it, look it up. Get it online and read it. And read it. It's, it's famous. <laughs> it's worth reading for sure. Uh, it is chilling. Look, look that you know. Here's a little piece of it. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as unworthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to, than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than, he, than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Okay. That, that's like crazy, serious stuff. Okay, what was going on? Here's what was going on. The, the church in America had fallen prey to Protestant scholasticism. The original passion of the Puritans had faded a couple of generations. Remember, I said it Saturday morning. 
half or more of you guys were here. The first generation believes the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. The third generation loses the gospel. This is what was happening. This is what was in play in America. So this is a very unique kind of sermon for a very unique purpose. It, it was designed to shock the nominal Christians out of their lethargy. It's not that these people weren't orthodox. They were orthodox. But that they were dead inside. And so this was designed, even the, the choice of language was designed to, to shock them out of their lethargy. First time he preached it was... So, this hard-heading rhetoric has come to characterize Edwards' preaching, but unfairly so. Page 203. Apparently, Edwards was not an excessively oppressive preacher. His style was more calm and reasonable rather than emotional and manipulative. Yeah, he preached with his head down. He read his manuscripts. Somewhat in a monotone. Okay. We didn't say it. Somebody didn't say it here. But what kind of theologian was Edwards, by the way? Mediocre? Not mediocre. No. In fact, he was probably the greatest theologian America has ever produced. Yeah. Philosopher. Amateur scientist. At 13, when he entered college, he already had a working knowledge of Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Not bad. Yes. That's heavy duty. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's right. It was the same thing. Edwards was after the heart. The affections. As he laid out in his book, Religious Affections, which again, I would commend to you. Edwards is not easy to read. Particularly for those of us um, who are not practiced readers. His sentence structure is lengthy, often complex, meaning he reads slow, sometimes repetitively to get it. That's a, that's a critique more of us and our generation than he and his abilities. But his book, Religious Affections, where he deals with what is true conversion? <laughs> what, what moves and motivates? Why does one choose to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and one does not? It comes down to the affections. We all choose what is most desirable to us. And unless and until the Spirit of God regenerates us and changes our affections, we will never choose Christ. But once that happens, Jesus becomes the most glorious, most beautiful, most wonderful person imaginable, and we cannot help but run to him. And as we grow in grace and we begin to see him, he becomes bigger and bigger and bigger in that vision. Our love for him grows, and the affections then change, and that changes the way we behave. So you see the, the strong Calvinistic theology and the pietistic concern for the heart masterfully put together. Very important. Good. Page uh, 205 at the bottom, another one of his 
you know, just seminal works, Freedom of the Will, 1754. Again, in your syllabus on page 77 is a short synopsis for you of Freedom of the Will. Again, something I wrote a long time ago. I just give it to you. If you get profit from it, wonderful. If it doesn't do you a bit of good, then you didn't pay much for it. Okay, so I just offer it to you there. It is, you see it, which is generally regarded as his greatest literary accomplishment. Establishes credentials as one of the greatest American theologians and philosophers. He affirmed the freedom of the will, but not the kind of freedom characteristic of Arminian theology. Complete freedom or self-determination, self-determining freedom. And then he goes on to spell it out for you there. So, is the will free? It's an unfair question. <laughs> Depends what you mean by free. At one level, yes. At another level, no. The will is bound by our affections. But did you make free and meaningful choices throughout this day? Yes, you did. What else we got? Yes. Right. The whole structure of the, the government of the country was established on Calvinistic understandings. Last sentence on 207. Well, let's see. Ed, Edwards emphasized, to put it mildly, is that the one? All right, through all of his writings, Edwards emphasized, to put it mildly, the God-centeredness of everything, and that it is only in God, through Jesus Christ, that anyone can receive what we all most long for, full happiness and complete satisfaction, all for the ultimate glory of God. Fantastic. By the way, uh, again, if you're looking to access Edwards' Early on, John Piper is um, has done some good work that would get you into it. And Piper is a much easier read than Edwards, yes. Yep. Okay. Even Piper's whole um, thought process of, of uh, what is it called, hedonistic Christianity, I think, something, isn't that the terminology he uses? Something like that, Christian Christian hedonism. It's kind of based on that idea that that it is when when our affections are captivated by Christ that we desire Him above all else. Okay, it was designed to be provocative, of course. Play sell books. Okay, good. Well, let's let's do one more. And we'll take a break. I mean, this one. Wow, this these three were amazing. Wait till you go next week. You're going to be banging your head on the wall. I expect two or three of you to come in here with a knot above your eye. After <laughs> we read about Schleiermarker and Ritzel. <laughs> Fortunately, Machen is added to the third because otherwise it would be nothing but despair. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Wesley, what do we know about good old John Wesley? He is a he is a series of contradictions, like most of us. Born three months before Edwards, contemporary, yes. Calvinist? No. No. We, we've already kind of pointed to him being influenced by the Moravians and so forth, leading to his later conversion. Okay. Once converted, did he ever leave the Anglican Church? Nope. Did he preach in the Anglican Church? Nope. They wouldn't let him. What was his preaching 
venue. Outdoors. His pulpit was a tree stump. Travel by horseback. Thousands of miles. Okay. How many times a week did he preach? Five or six times a week. Oh, it's a day. I'm sorry. That's right. Oh, yeah. Four or five times daily. Yep, there it is. Yep, you're right. That's pious. I agree. Okay. In in uh, it's kind of it's funny because in uh, Acts, uh, what is that? That's Acts chapter. They're first called Christians in Antioch. Where is that? Here it is. It's uh, Acts 11. The first call Christians in Antioch, Acts 11, 26. That was not a compliment. So what were Wesley and his followers called? Methodists. That was not a compliment. Why were they called Methodists? They were a little OCD. Yes, they emphasized, here it is, top of 210. Derogatory term Methodist was applied to them due to their methodological and rigorous routines of prayer, meditation, Bible study, and mutual exhortation. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like pietism, and that's what it is. And that's what it is. One of the Oxford students who joined the society was... George Whitfield, great American evangelist, or British evangelist, rather. George Whitfield, yep. Became a good friend and close associate of the Wesley brothers. And uh, Whitfield was a Calvinist, and that led to a falling out between uh, John and George, eventually. Okay. Let's see. We notice here on page 211, the influence of Puritan pietism was lost. In the, uh, in the church, the Anglican church, replaced by an Arminian rationalism that had deteriorated into mere moralism, that is, preaching that only emphasized living a good life as best you could. So he preached for conversion against great opposition. Form societies, eventually, for the for the for the uh, expansion of Methodism, it wasn't particularly successful in England. It was r- ragingly successful in America. Methodism was perfectly suited for the westward expansion of the American Empire. In other words, as America expanded west and the settlers kept moving west. The idea of settled pastors, seminary trained in parsonages and parishes and all of that just completely was gone. And what replaced it was a revivalistic approach with a circuit rider who would visit and get up on a stump and preach, preach for conversion, leave you with the methods, pray, Bible study, you know, these kinds of things, and then move on. And that suited the the independent American spirit and was used of God. Many saved through 
Methodist churches and preaching, even still today. Probably, eh, maybe not as much now because Methodism, and we can talk about that, Methodism has for the most part fallen off the rails. Okay. But certainly my generation and before, many, many who now are Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever, were, were first heard the gospel in Methodist churches. Yep. Okay. Why would Methodism have fallen off the rails, by the way? What's well, the one thing about that kind of comes out with Wesley as you read through this with relation to, uh, to theology? What, what, was, what was Wesley's orientation towards theology? It was more spenner. It was more pietistic, yes. Right. Yes. That's right. Methodism, for the most part, it, it has fallen off the rails because it did not have strong theological fences to hold it in. And descended, in many cases, into liberalism in the pursuit of, of a practical Christianity, a Christianity that works, involvement in social justice issues long before it was called social justice. Okay? All right. Let's see. One other thing before we leave, uh, Wesley. Let's talk about <laughs> perfection or perfectionism. Okay? Let's talk about perfectionism. This is Wesley's origination. Okay. So you see his on page 213. Wesley's second unique contribution is in the area of personal sanctification, specifically what he called entire sanctification or perfection. In his treatise, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection, while Luther and most other Protestant reformers believed that Christians were completely justified, yet continued to sin throughout life, similarly used to set peccator at the same time just and sinner, Wesley posited the idea that a form of complete sanctification was possible in this life. Aware of possible misunderstandings, again, in, let's, let's give him his due, because we can throw a lot of rocks at perfectionism, but let's not set up a straw man. Uh, Wesley tried to clarify his thinking by adding an appendix to his plain account. You see it there, uh, number one, by perfection I mean the, the humble, gentle, patient love of God and our neighbor, ruling our tempers, words, and actions. I do not include an impossibility of falling from it, either in part or in whole, I do not contend for the term sinless, although I do not object against it. Two, as to the manner, I believe this perfection is always wrought in the soul by a simple act of faith, consequently in an instant. But I believe in a gradual work, both preceding and following that instant. Three, as to the time, I believe this instant generally is the instant of death the moment when the soul leaves the body, but I believe it may be 10, 20, or even 40 years before. I believe it is usually many years after justification, but that it may be within five years or five months after it. I know of no conclusive argument to the contrary. Okay, what in the world is he talking about? Okay, what he is talking about is what is commonly known as a second work of grace. There is conversion. And then the second work of grace where 
the Spirit of God acts in your soul, and we're, we're going we're gonna to delve into this in some detail here in a few, well, a few weeks when we get out here, well, a few weeks out, uh, acts in your soul to entirely sanctify you or perfect you such that you no longer are drawn toward these sinful inclinations, that your heart is filled with a, with a, with a new and profound sense of love for God, Christ, and others. This Wesleyan theology provides the theological lift for Pentecostalism and came to be identified in Pentecostalism with the second work of grace and its physical manifestation, which would be, guess what? Yes, speaking in tongues. When you spoke in tongues, that was the moment of the second work of grace in which you received what I call the holy hop. And you progress to this new level of spirituality that the others just don't have. Okay? Wesley believed this. He taught it. it. It has become very much a part of Wesleyan theology. And Wesleyan theology has influenced the entire Pentecostal movement. The Pentecostal movement has, has influenced the entire charismatic movement. So they're all at their root, Wesleyan, in their theology. The, the 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 holy hop, yes, yes, and what he and he bifurcated it. So he would he would just take the passages about love and so forth and and prioritize them and say this is what you will achieve, this is what I've achieved. Problem is his life is pretty complex. Let's put it that way. You, if you're looking for an interesting biography, read a biography of John Wesley's life. I mean, there's just amazing, many commendable things. But there's his marriage was an absolute train wreck. And there's probably pretty good evidence that um, his wife was not his only companion. Uh, that he was. Yeah. Well, well, Charles wasn't as Armenian as John. Charles actually um, tended towards Calvinism, but John, yes, more towards the Whitfield camp, but, but John was the, the, the front man, the, the important guy, and Charles had a lesser role. And, and these two brothers had tremendous devotion to one another. And so, yes, I think Charles kind of shielded it somewhat, but yes, he's, he wrote some pretty Calvinistic kinds of hymns. A closet Calvinist, yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, John Wesley. Here we go. Let's just conclude with this and we will take a break. When he died, he left behind 79,000 followers. I'm on page 214. In England and 40,000 in North America. If we judge greatness by influence, he was among the greatest of his time. Today, there are over 15 million Methodists worldwide. Wesley's influence is also seen in Wesleyan churches, Pentecostalism, the holiness movement, revivalism, and the evangelical movement in general. Yes. Okay. Wesley had a profound influence. A profound influence. Okay. 
I mean, just think about it. He took the pietism, which launched the Protestant missionary endeavor, and what did he become? Arguably the greatest missionary of that era. One thing about missions, they're messy. They're messy. Uh, uh, effective missionaries have their, have their theological fences in place. They know where the boundaries are. But they're able to operate with a, with a fair amount of ambiguity that most of us could not operate in and thus are not suited for it. It's my observation. So, if you're thinking about missions, think about that. Can I hang firmly onto what is non-negotiable, essential, and yet operate in an ambiguous environment, cooperating with others who don't agree for the greater good of seeing men and women hear about faith in Christ and repent and believe? recognizing they will be saved and their theology will be kind of messed up. But they will be saved. Now, Wesleyanism lies behind the fundamental Baptist church movement as well. Page 22 in your syllabus. I'm talking to you about the Mass. We're not going to exhaust this topic. It's just to introduce you to it. Some of you may be far more knowledgeable on it than I am. I wouldn't dispute that. But for many, unless you've undertaken a serious study on your own or you grew up Roman Catholic and inquired into it, then uh, certainly for most Protestants, the Mass is kind of this obscure thing. What is it? Uh, it's, it's important to understand what it is because it is the core of Roman Catholic theology. It's, it's impossible to divorce the Mass from Roman Catholic theology. If you did, you wouldn't be Roman Catholic. It will never be abandoned and it'll never be. Reformed. It is the it is the bedrock under which the whole Roman edifice stands. So, what is it? <clears throat> Pardon me. Nothing like a peanut. Okay. So, I got a little quote here for you from Vatican II. <clears throat> Pardon me. You see the dates there: Vatican Second Vatican Council, nineteen sixty-two to nineteen sixty-five. This was, by the way, the, the Vatican Council that was called, uh, be careful how I say this, but to, to a large degree, because Roman Catholicism was seeing an outflow of attendance, membership, because the Mass in Latin and so forth was obscure. And this coupled with the charismatic movement, which was infiltrating Roman Catholicism in a major way, and when we get to Pente Pentecostalism and, and charismatic movement in May, we'll, uh, we'll deal with how that happened. Um, the there was changes made in the Mass. It was, it was placed into English, for one, and there were kind of changes in window dressing. But the core, the fundamental of the Mass has not changed and will not change. Okay, so, quoting from Vatican II. For in the sacrifice, all right, just notice terminology here. For in the sacrifice of the Mass, so it's already a sacrifice. In the sacrifice of the Mass, our Lord is immolated. 
that is killed as a sacrifice. When, it, when he begins to be pre- present sacramentally as the spiritual food of the faithful under the appearances of bread and wine. Okay, what did we just, what did he just say? Yes, Christ is being re-sacrificed every time a mass is offered. Every time. Right, so it runs afoul of, you know, his one and only sacrifice and all the statements of such things. Right, uh, Romans 6, 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind that all the faithful ought to show to this most holy sacrament, remember, sacrament is a means for conveying grace, the worship which is due to the true Lord. So we're talking now about worship directed to the sacrament, to the bread and the cup. As has always been the custom of the Catholic Church, nor is it to be adored any the less because it was instituted by Christ to be eaten. For even in the reserved sacrament, reserved sacrament means the leftovers, he is to be adored because he is substantially present there through that conversion of bread and wine, which, as the Council of Trent tells us, is most aptly named transubstantiation. Okay, This is the doctrine of transubstantiation in the understanding of which is that the, the, the bread and the wine are through the, the, the blessing of the priest, the prayer of the priest. So the priesthood is necessary as well. It's another foundational stone to, to perform this conversion, this transubstantiation, so that it becomes the body and blood of the Lord. Next page, 23. <clears throat> So the Mass is considered by the Roman Catholic Church as a propitiatory propitiatory sacrifice. That means a sacrifice that removes the wrath of God, in which Christ is repeatedly offered for the salvation of the entire world. Vatican 2, page 114. Okay, just in case you're thinking that I'm making this stuff up. It is the heart of Catholicism and its doctrine of of redemption being the means through which the faithful are replenished in the grace of their salvation. Man, that is huge. We're going we're gonna to deal next week with salvation under Roman Catholicism. I'll just tell you this, that at their baptism, their original sin is extinguished and, and saving grace is infused, Roman Catholic theology. It then bleeds out and is restored through the Mass. the replenishment of the grace. In order to perpetuate the sacrifice of Christ, his body must be reconstituted by the, quote, miracle, close quote, of transubstantiation. They base this, by the way, on John 6, 51 to 54. I'll read it to you real quick. John 6, 51 to 54. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give you for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. 
Okay, so that's the that's the passage they would take you to to support it. Transubstantiation, which is the name given to the transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. The actual process by which the priest transforms the elements is called consecration. The priest is an indispensable part of the Roman system. At the moment of consecration, three important things are said to occur. Now, the Mass looks to Aristotle for its theological-slash-philosophical lift, and in particular to Aquinas, who was Aristotle's Catholic interpreter. So, according to Aristotle, matter consists of two components, what's called the accidents, which are the outward appearance of things, and then the substance, which is the inner essence of things. So, the accidents is the cup that you see, right? The substance is the, the inner essence of this cup uh, that, that exists in time and space. <laughs> it's the invisible part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, the inner essence of the bread and wine cease to exist in the consecration. Okay, so this is why it's called a miracle. So its inner essence, which is bread and wine, it's the breadness and the wineness of the bread and the wine, cease to exist. The outward appearance of the bread and wine remain, though they are no longer connected to any inward reality of their own. So you've got the, you've got the external appearance free-floating without its inner essence. Don't you love philosophy? What did Tertullian say? What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? <laughs> All right. The inner essence of Christ's true body and blood comes to exist under the appearance of the bread and the wine. So that's what they're arguing. They're not saying that the bread is like this, flesh. They're saying that its inner essence is the flesh of Christ, but its outward appearance is still bread. Now, there's a problem here. The problem is, is that at the, at the moment of the consecration, all of the bread and all the wine is, is um, transubstantiated. What do you do with the leftovers? Uh, they're, they're either consumed or they're actually, uh, at times they're locked up for the next service in a, in a box called the tabernacle and stored. Now, yeah, because it would sour. Well, yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> we'll put that in the tabernacle. Although, though, there's no point in letting good blood of Christ go to waste. It's good vintage. So, yeah, it's consumed. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, also, by the, reason, by the way, the reason behind the denial of the cup to the laity they're afraid they'd spill the blood of Christ. But they can put the they can put the wafer on your tongue. They can be sure you don't drop it. All right, let's finish with this. This is from uh, Lorraine Bettner's book, Roman Catholicism, <laughs> publication date in the early 50s. 
In addition to a bloodless representation of the sacrifice of Christ, quote, the elaborate ritual of the Mass is really an extended pageant designed to reenact the experiences of Christ from the supper in the upper room through the agony in the garden, the betrayal, trial, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. It is a drama crowding the detailed events of many days into the space of one hour or less. For its proper performance, the priest in seminary goes through long periods of training and needs a marvelous memory. Witness the following. He makes the sign of the cross 16 times. He turns toward the congregation six times, lifts his eyes to heaven 11 times, kisses the altar eight times, folds his hands four times, strikes his breast 10 times, bows his head 21 times, genuflects eight times, bows his shoulders seven times, blesses the altar with the sign of the cross 30 times, lays his hand flat on the altar 29 times, prays secretly 11 times, prays aloud 13 times, takes the bread and the wine and turns it into the body and blood of Christ, covers and uncovers the chalice 10 times, goes to and fro 20 times, and in addition performs numerous other acts. His bowings and genuflections are imitations of Christ in his agony and suffering. The various articles of clothing worn by the priest at different stages of the drama represent those worn by Christ. Man, that's a lot to remember. They're all Wesleyan Methodists, yeah. So, it, it's a pageant. It's a, it's a big pageant that's being reenacted thousands of times a day all over the world every day. Okay. So, what should be our response to these things? Jesus, yeah. I would say first it ought to be a heart of compassion for people who are trapped in this system. <laughs> right. I know. It, it is pretty amazing. Now, does the run of the average run of the mill Catholic know all of this? Probably not. I would say, yeah, definitely not. Compassion. They need the gospel. They need the gospel with compassion. We're going to talk about salvation under Roman Catholicism. The problem is Salvation is never secure under Roman Catholicism. You never can be sure. Uh, yeah, we will talk about indulgences and purgatory and all the rest of that, and yes, but that, but that is all part of it as well, is there's just no certainty. How do you know you did enough? So you're locked into the system, and you're born into the system. How many people have you met who you talk to and they say, ah, oh, you know, I'm Roman Catholic. Well, when's the last time you went to a Roman Catholic church? But, uh, you know, I was born into it. Well, you can't even marry. Can't be married without, yeah. I mean, there's all those fences that are erected to, to keep the sheep in the, in the pen, yeah. Yep. I mean, Vatican II did permit, and in some, you know, it's not a, it's not a monolith. So in some parishes, there's more... I'm going to say this. Uh, say, there's a little more evangel, a little more evangel than in others, maybe, where they might encourage some Bible reading, those kinds of things, and particularly as the charismatic movement moved in, it might be a little more of that. Uh, and then there are, you know, certainly under the Council of Trent and so forth. Remember, we talked about this. They placed an anathema on all Protestant writings, and including the idea of reading the Bible. So, 
it kind of depends on the priest. The local priest could make reading the Bible a little more acceptable, maybe even encouraged at some... I mean, he'll be the final interpreter for you. They're not going to give that up. So, you know, come come to me and I'll tell you what it means kind of thing. Uh, but others, it's like, don't read it at all. Uh, the unexpressed part is you're too stupid to understand it. Answer to sure. Me. Yeah, because as a as a layman, if you read it, you're likely to misunderstand it, and it's going to mess you up. It was interesting. Yeah. It was interesting. Okay, so that's the mass. In a nutshell, <laughs> I, I I worked with a guy years ago. We went every day at noontime for mass, five days a week, and I'm sure he went on Saturdays and Sundays as well. Very devoted man. Right, because they're cutting. I mean, that's that's like the the interdict. That's so when the, when there was a tussles between the pope now we're back in the you know 12th 13th 14th centuries tussles between the pope and the and the secular kings the pope could place a country under the interdict and w- and what that meant was basically that the mass was not to be offered in that country hey you know what if you cut the entire country's population off from grace it's not going to be long before they've got pitchforks outside the king's castle and and they'll force movement and it was pretty successful. Now it was a lot easier to do in those days when you know the sheep they had all the sheep in one pen. But post Reformation it's a little harder. But yeah. It is the grace dispensing machine. It's a good way to put it. Okay, gentlemen. So thank you. Again, just to remind you. Oh, how are you doing on your timelines? I know how you're doing, but how are you, how are, what's your, um, so I know, I, I don't believe in entire sanctification, so I know, I know you wretched sinners haven't started it for the most part, but again, you will benefit if you will do it, you will benefit if you will do it, so go for it, next week, pick it up starting with Schleier Marker, and follow it forward for the next three. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.